Last week I talked about the importance of uh, community and communalism, how rampant individualism destroys human relationship and ignores the very wiring that natural selection has given us as animals that evolved as social creatures. I should put in a plug for our podcasts and our website because if you didn't hear that last week or you want to read up on it again, all you got to do is go to our website. Podcasts and PDFs are always there. Last Sunday, I also took a stab at what I see as the fatal contradiction at the heart of the founding myths of the United States. The rugged individualism and redemptive violence of American myth quickly becomes, in reality, the loner with an automatic weapon. The myth of a frontier spirit ignores the fact that the people of the American frontier paradoxically depended upon a vast structure of manufacture, trade, and technological power, a vast superstructure of steel and iron. In addition, in British North America, Capitalist ideology encouraged the concept of individual freedom and also encouraged the belief that each individual could succeed economically given sufficient will and freedom and imagination. This led to persistent suspicion that those who weren't making it weren't really trying. Myths, stories, metaphors, all of them too quickly become indisputable truisms. Take the story of Unitarian Universalism here in the United States. We start when we tell that story with the Pilgrims and the Puritans and talk about those good ideas of liberty and individual conscience and congregational freedom. We don't often mention that they didn't come to this hemisphere to establish religious liberty, but to set up a Christian theocracy. And we don't reflect that their chosen method of setting up this Christian theocracy was genocide. And we don't often look at the fact that congregational freedom too often leads to isolationism. Perhaps we should start our history of Unitarian Universalism with, well, it started with a group of theocratic isolationist genocidal maniacs. Now, that might be a bit harsh, but to ignore the complicity of Unitarians and Universalists in traditions of genocide and slavery is to perpetuate lies. To pretend that our faith tradition has not been smug and self-satisfied is to miss the facts of the matter. Clearly, I don't think there ever was anything called the good old days. I don't think there was ever a time when moral certitude was underwritten by a particular set of philosophies, such as old Christian theology. Yes, uh, many did believe in that certitude, and clearly many want to return to that place today. But we must insist it was always an illusion. If there's any philosophy at all behind that recent phrase, make America great again, it is that the founding mythologies of the United States supply moral certitude. The myths of radical individualism, the myth that violence produces peace, and that radical free market capitalism creates prosperity. Oh, and a fourth myth that every American has the right to believe 
whatever they want, facts be darned. Last week, I also mentioned that there are philosophers these days, especially in Europe, who, rather than beginning with claims about the rights of the individual, start with assumptions about social obligations. For example, the French philosopher I had in the order of service last week, Jean-Luc Nancy, who said, we do not have meaning anymore because we ourselves are meaning entirely, without reserve, infinitely, with no meaning other than us. Nancy is beginning from a very different assumption than older philosophies and religions. There is no truth in Nancy's vision or meaning out there. Truth is created in community. Truth and meaning are the result of human interactions. In your order of service this morning, there's a quote from a contemporary American philosopher at the University of Chicago, Nancy or Martha Nussbaum, who is working in the same vein of communalism as some European philosophers. Nussbaum puts it this way, it's in your order of service, little long. Thank you, Martha, for getting it in there, but, uh, it, but I, you couldn't stop somewhere with this quote. Here it goes. Being a human means accepting promises from other people and trusting that other people will be good to you. When that is too much to bear, it is always possible to retreat into the thought, I'll live for my own comfort, for my own revenge, for my own anger, and I just won't be a member of society anymore. That really means I won't be human, a human being anymore, end quote. Like Don C., Nussbaum believes that we are what we are as a result of being in community. Outside of community, there be dragons, as the old saying goes, and monsters with guns. Radical individualism plus unfettered capitalism equals what? What we have today, I suppose. We do well to face a fact. Nowhere was the idea of individualism more important than in the development of Unitarian and Universalist thought in the United States. This is well summarized in the difference between freedom from and freedom to. Unitarians and Universalists have too often interpreted the freedom from religion, from creed and dogma, with the freedom to believe whatever the current spirituality fad happens to be. But what if this drive to be unique is exactly the problem? It is a very short leap from discovering your own spirituality to picking and choosing what happens to be fake news to you. Martha Nussbaum writes, all our happiness and alienation come from the attempt to be an individual above everything else, whereas consolation, consolation comes when one relaxes into a sense of something greater than oneself. And that is, that sense of being something greater than oneself, that is one's species life, she writes and also the whole of history, which that represents. And you do that in conjunction with animals because they already exist in their species life." End quote. Well, that sounds like humanism, doesn't it? 
Nussbaum doesn't take the road of seeing something greater than oneself as being some sort of God. No, the thing that's greater than each of us is our common humanity and the history of what human beings have done on this planet and the fact that we are only one species of animal inhabiting the planet. This is paradoxical, but important. We can't be individuals until we give up trying to individualize ourselves. We must relax into our common humanity. But for Nussbaum, that common humanity is in no way some abstraction. As a matter of fact, Nussbaum believes that abstraction is our biggest problem as humans. You see, the Greek philosopher Plato was very taken with a metaphor, the ladder of love. On the bottom rung, according to Plato, is physical attraction, lust. At the top is pure love, love of beauty itself. And yeah, that's where the term platonic love comes from. This metaphor is sometimes called Plato's ascent, ascent up the spiritual ladder. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? But that's the problem. It only sounds good. Like cheesecake, it's not really good for you. Of all the negative ideas that Greek philosophy fed into Christian thought and hence into the, our Western way of thinking, this has, I think, been the most damaging. Not only has it encouraged the fetishization, if I can get that out, of the body, think Barbie, but it's also created categories and boxes into which too many people have felt compelled to fit. Boxes like man and woman and you know Barbie and Ken and hero and beauty and successful, boxes like that. Martha Nussbaum begs to differ with Plato in what Plato saw as ideal love, calling that ladder instead the descent of love. The ladder of love, Nussbaum says, leaves out of account and therefore out of love everything about a person that is not good and fine. The flaws, the faults, the neutral idiosyncrasies, she calls them, and the bodily history. That quote, the flaws and the faults, the neutral idiosyncrasies, the bodily history. And that does sum up a problem with, with Western thinking, doesn't it? If the ideal, the top rung of love, is totally abstract perfection, well, not even airbrushed people can make that, can they? It's beyond the human capacity to achieve, and that's the problem. Let's call it the delusion of dualistic thinking. The Western world's belief that there is a spirit or a spiritual world of perfect forms, stuff starting out with capital letters like beauty and big L love and truth and God and democracy and on and on, it makes us not love the imperfect world, which is the place where we actually live. Everything about the person that is not good and fine, 
Nussbaum says, the flaws and the faults, the neutral idiosyncrasies and bodily history. We start leaving out everything about each other. Getting over Plato isn't easy. Who doesn't wish that there were a perfect world of truth and beauty somewhere beyond this one? But getting out of this way of thinking is the only way out of those chutes and ladders of delusion. It's all right here, for better or for worse. That is the center of humanist thinking. How are we going to go about loving the imperfect? Loving that our lives, what our lives have given us instead of what we wish our lives would give us. How do we get outside the world of airbrushed commercials and the ads that tell us what we ought to love and what we ought to have? Let's face some facts. This is not an ideal world. I hate to break it to us. <laughs> this is not an ideal nation. This is not an ideal city. Ours is not an ideal religious tradition, Unitarian or Universalism or humanist history. Our relationships are not ideal. Our children, our loved ones, none of them are ideal, in case you haven't noticed. Nothing is ideal. And you know what? That's okay. Welcome to reality. We just need to deal with it. There are no ideal forms. There's no great white guy in the sky making everything ideal. Forget the promises you think you have been promised. Plato was lying to us. The ideal is a lie. Progress, the future, all lies, all illusions. But that's A-OK, -okay because that's seeing it like it actually is. We must love the imperfection, because that's all we're going to get. But you know what? It's all anyone has ever gotten out of this life. And it's all anybody ever will get out of this life. And it is enough. We must start there to set our expectations. I don't know if there's a God out there or not, but here's what I'm pretty sure is true. If there is a God, God is just like your lover or your spouse or your parents or your kids. If there is a God, he, she, it, or they has bad breath, I bet, <laughs> and gas, and probably texts while driving even, or something like that, and other things that aren't perfect. You get the idea. Nothing is perfect. Nothing is perfect in our universe. It's just a big explosion. We must love the imperfection because that's all we're going to get. And it is enough because it's all there is. Again, Martha Nussbaum, being a human means accepting promises from other people and trusting that other people will be good to you 
When that is too much to bear, it is always possible to retreat into the thought, I'll live for my own comfort, for my own revenge, for my own anger, and I just won't be a member of society anymore. That really means I won't be a human being anymore. End quote. This is the terrible illusion that has haunted the Western mind. The pilgrims and the Puritans, the Unitarians, the Universalists, none of us can be individuals, no matter how hard we try. We are what we are, each of us, because and only because there is an us. Authoritarianism wants to convince you that some ideal person can come along and get it right, but that's a lie. If we just cut to the chase and stop talking and forget this democracy stuff, everything will be okay. It's a lie. Nationalism wants to convince you that there really is one ideal nation that gets it right. That's a lie. Nativist movements want to convince you that there's only a certain type of person who is an ideal citizen. That's a lie. Racism wants to convince you that there is an ideal race of human. That's a lie. Two ways of being human, man or woman, that's a lie. Only sex with a person of the opposite gender is true and fine. That's a lie. But again, we get back to the paradox. Collectively, we must work to allow each person the freedom to define their own individual lives. That's the part of the Unitarian and Universalist legacies that deserves to live on past us. As a collective, we must not ask some to shed a part of themselves in order to be among us. That is ideal and true if we can keep it in our mind. How do we get there? What would it look like to go from diversity to inclusion? The pilgrims didn't know, and they didn't want to know. The Puritans didn't know, and they didn't want to know. The Unitarians and the Universalists down through the years have not known, but ours is the task to figure it out, finally. A friend of mine who's a diversity officer at a college puts it this way, diversity is when you get invited to the party. Inclusion is when you have fun at the party. <laughs> Folks, that is our call to action. Can we go beyond inviting people to the party, thinking that maybe, just maybe, they will be those ideal people? Can we invite everyone to the party and work to make sure that they all have fun at the party? I mean, what does that even look like? What assumptions and illusions and myths and ideologies do each of us have to shed before everyone has fun? at the party. Again, Martha Nussbaum, being a human means accepting promises from other people and trusting that other people will be good to you. When that is too much to bear, it is always possible to retreat into the thought, I'll live for my own comfort, for my own revenge, for my own anger, and I just won't be a member of society anymore. That really means I won't be a human anymore. Let's say no to that impulse. Let's learn to say yes to that something greater than ourselves, 
which is our life as a species.